0: Good morning. Don't mind me. I'm just walking over here. How's everybody doing? Good, great. Yeah. You guys know that in second service, people respond when I say things like that. Like, it's just a different vibe, you know, if you've been to second service. People actually, you can do that too if you want. It's okay. Or you can just be yourselves. It's fine. Uh, We're continuing in our study through Hebrews. This is week seven, I believe. Uh, Almost lost track. We've been doing this a while. It's been really helpful for me um, to to really dig into this uh, really important letter, and I hope that you've learned and grown through this as well. Um, So what we've covered so far, we've talked about for the last few weeks, uh, we've been in chapters kind of four, five, seven, eight, nine a little bit into 10, and we've been talking about these important elements of the Old Covenant, the Old Covenant in particular, and then the elements of the Old Covenant like the sacrificial system, the temple tabernacle, um, and the the priests and the priestly role. And uh, we sort of skipped chapter 6. And some of you have been wondering, are we going to go back to chapter 6? Because there's something in there that I have questions about. So yes, that's what we're doing today. Chapter 6 of Hebrews. We're going to be in verses 1 through 12 today Uh, because chapter 6 says something that uh, some of us struggle with. In fact, some of you, when you read what the writer says in chapter 6, you immediately start forming arguments in your mind uh, from other passages of Scripture to tell yourself what he seems to be saying can't be possibly what he's saying because there's other things in the Bible that seem to say something different. So um, what... What the writer seems to say in chapter six is that someone who has become a Christian can get to a place where they're no longer a Christian, right? And for some some of us, the way we're raised and taught, we think that that, that can't be right. That can't be true. So we're going to dig into this and see what the writer is saying. And in order to really, uh, I think, understand what the writer is saying here and why, uh, why he says it this particular way, we need to just refresh our memories on why Hebrews was written to begin with. If you've been with us for the last six, seven weeks, you, you, kinda, you could say this right along with me, but Hebrews was written as a sermon to a group of Jewish Christians living in Italy who are paying a high cost for following Jesus. They were finding that the way of Jesus put them in conflict with their culture, created friction between them and the culture, that they lived in, and that friction created pain, and the pain for many of them was so intense that it caused them to want to let go of Jesus and to revert back to a former faith, and their former faith for these Jewish Christians was the old covenant, this priestly system, sacrificial system based on uh, the Old Testament laws, the Torah, and uh, the penalty for the laws, and the sacrifices, and, and all of that. And so what the writer is encouraging them to do is to hold on to Jesus. Don't go back to this inadequate and incomplete version of your faith, but hold on to Jesus because Jesus really is the only one who can claim authority over the kingdom of God, who is your Lord and Savior. He's the only one who died for you. He's the only one who mediates between us and God. Don't let go of Jesus. Jesus is where it's at. Jesus has everything you need, so don't, don't let go of Jesus. So let's keep that in mind as we read through this, because for us, again, we, if we truly follow the way of Jesus, it will put us in conflict with our culture. Many of you have experienced that. You know exactly what I'm talking about, that it creates friction. When you live out the way of Jesus, it creates friction between you and our culture. And that friction can be very painful. And for many people, there is a temptation to revert back to a former version of our faith that is inadequate and incomplete. And for us, that version is the version that really reduces the gospel to a decision point in my life where I said, I trust Jesus for salvation because I want to go to heaven and not hell when I die. That's, a, that's an, a, an inadequate and incomplete version of the gospel and of our faith. But we are tempted to revert back to that because if we take the whole gospel in and we live out the way of Jesus, it is difficult and painful in this world. So the temptation is not for us to revert to Judaism. That's not what we're going to uh, see here in chapter six. It's for us to revert back to an incomplete and inadequate version of our own faith that I think um, makes life easier. It's more convenient and more comfortable for us if we just stick with that very, um, reduced down version of the gospel. So that's why the author is gonna say what he says here in chapter six. So I just want us to keep that in mind. That's where we're coming from. That's the starting point, right? So let's, let's dive in. Hebrews chapter six, verses one and two. <clears throat> Therefore, let us move beyond the elementary teachings about Christ and be taken forward to maturity. Okay, so maturity, the way he defines it at the end of chapter five, he says, what you need to do is Uh, You need to practice through, uh, through practice, you need to learn to discern good from evil. Uh, That's maturity, right? And so he says, let's move on from the elementary teachings and be taken forward to maturity, not laying again the foundation of repentance from acts that lead to death and to faith in God, instruction about cleansing rites, the laying on of hands, the resurrection of the dead, and eternal judgment. So uh, he's saying, basically, there, there are some, some foundational teachings that you should all have down by this point, right? You, you should know these. These should be built in to how you see the world and how you view your relationship with God. Let's move on to maturity because you already know the basic principles. Now, um, that might not be a fair assumption in all audiences. It might not be a fair assumption to say you all already know the basic elements of our faith, I would hope that if you've been around this church for very long, you do know those basic elements. And if you don't, it's probably our fault because that's our job is to teach you, instruct you in the basic elements of our faith. But if you've been a Christian for a long time, hopefully these are things you know and this assumption is true of you. You, you already know the foundational principles and it's time to move into maturity. This doesn't mean that we leave these uh, basic principles and doctrines behind as though they're not important anymore, this means we add to them. It's like when you're teaching a young person to play basketball. I don't know if you've ever done any coaching. When you're teaching a young person to play basketball, you start with the basics, right? You start with the fundamentals, right? Triple threat position. So you can dribble, pass, or shoot, right? You, you learn all those basic principles of basketball. And then as you grow as a player, you don't forget, you don't move on, you don't stop dribble, pass, and shoot, you add to that things like pick and roll and boxing out and, you know, zone defense, right? So that's, that's maturing as, a, as an athlete. We, we need to mature as Christians by adding on to the basic elements of our faith uh, into maturity, better thinking, consistent growth. Okay, uh, here's, this is the fun part. Here we go. Verse four. It is impossible for those who have once been enlightened, who have tasted the heavenly gift who have shared in the Holy Spirit, who have tasted the goodness of the word of God and the powers of the coming age and who have fallen away to be brought back to repentance. To their loss, they are crucifying the son of God all over again and subjecting him to public disgrace. Land that drinks in the rain often falling on it and that produces a crop useful to those for whom it is farmed receives the blessing of God. But land that produces thorns and thistles is worthless and is in danger of being cursed in the end it will be burned. So this analogy uh, with the, the land at the end, uh, the land is the people and the people, their, their purpose is to be fruitful. And if the people aren't fruitful, then, then God is kind of saying, I gave you the rain that you needed to be fruitful. If, it's not, if you're not fruitful, you're not fulfilling your purpose. You're not doing what you're called to do. <laughs> so the writer's saying, if, if you don't continue to grow in your faith, then we, we have a serious problem. You're going to have a problem. And, and, and remember why he's writing this, because these people have experienced the pain of being in conflict with their culture because they're trying to follow Jesus. And he says, if you're not growing in your faith, if you're not growing in maturity as a Christian, you won't be able to endure that pain, and you could fall away. You could fall away. So what does he mean um, by uh, these things, by falling away? The, the intent here is not to describe uh, something that can happen by accident. Falling away feels like a very passive phrase, but it's, uh, what he means is, is an active choice. It's not something you just, you just accidentally fall away from God as, as though you, you trip down the stairs or something, but it's an active choice, which is indicated by the phrase, you're crucifying the Son of God all over again. So this is an active choice to turn away from Jesus, to reject Jesus' sacrifice for your sins and essentially say, I don't need that, I don't want that in my life. And then he says, for those who have uh, tasted the heavenly gift, shared in the Holy Spirit, and have fallen away, it is impossible to be brought back. Or The ESV says it is impossible to restore them again. Uh, so again, uh, let's understand what he's saying and what he's not saying. He's not saying, uh, he's not talking about people who reject the gospel without knowing Jesus, right? It's not talking about, you know, people who you, you share the gospel with, you, you tell them about Jesus and they say, oh, I don't think that's for me, no thank you. He's talking, I mean, that, that's like a child who refuses to eat a new food because it's new, you know, and they just don't, don't like it. And you say, well, if you would just try it, you would probably like it, and I don't wanna try it. That's not who he's talking about. He's talking about people who have been all in with Jesus. They've they've, they've made the decision. They've stood up in front of people and declared, Jesus is my Lord and Savior. They've probably been baptized into Christ. He says that they have received the Holy Spirit, and they've been a part of a family of believers. He says for those people who then reject Jesus, it's impossible for them to be brought back to repentance. Repentance. Uh, so let's, let's talk about what impossible means um, and why this is such a serious thing. I, I think we have to put ourselves in the minds of, of these, the faithful people, the faithful people who are, are paying the same high price for following Jesus, and yet they are holding on. And it is costing them greatly. We, we know from chapter 10 that many of them are having their property confiscated, that they're being outcast from their societies, some even from their own families, but they will not let go. And they've got these brothers and sisters in Christ who are supposed to be linking arms with them and helping them stand up, and some of them are walking away. This is not only a sin against God at this point. It's a sin against their family, their brothers and sisters in Christ. We need each other. And when people start bailing out, it hurts the whole body. It hurts the whole family. So what what is he saying? So that's why I think this is so serious and why the writer is using this kind of tough language. When he says impossible, what we need to understand is how the Bible talks about impossible. You remember when Jesus told the disciples that it's easier um, for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter heaven. How did the disciples process that? They said, oh, well, it's impossible for a camel to go through the eye of a needle. So what we hear you saying, Jesus, is that it's impossible for rich people to enter heaven. And Jesus says, yes, but with God, all things are possible, right? So when he says impossible, he's not saying it's something that, that God is unable to do, right? Because God is able, right? But what he's saying is it's impossible for someone who has gone all in with Jesus and then chooses to reject Jesus. It's impossible for us to bring them to repentance. It's impossible for us. And, and it may be in their situation, it may be impossible for them to repent in the state of their heart. Where it is. You you know as, as well as I do, and you've experienced this if you're a, if you're a parent or if you're a boss or if you're a you know, any, any kind of if you're a school teacher or even a student, you can't make people want something they don't want, can you? You just you can't if, if somebody doesn't want it, you can't make somebody want it. What is the, the old phrase? You can you can lead a horse to water, but you can't make them drink, and then and then smart people add it onto that later, but you can feed them salt and make them thirsty, and then maybe that. and so we think, well, we can't make people want something they don't want, but maybe we can make them thirsty for God. Maybe we can make them hungry. And I think what the writer's saying here is like, for those who abandon the church and Jesus in this time of persecution, for you to go after them is gonna be a waste of your time. That's really sad, isn't it? That actually doesn't feel good to me. It feels like, no, we should chase down people. We should go after people who walk away from Jesus. But what he's telling them in this time of persecution, when it's hard, when it, when it puts you in conflict, that for you to go after people who have, who have gone all in with Jesus and then choose to reject him, to go after them at this point is a waste of your time. So our question really with this passage has to do with salvation. What, what we're concerned about is Can someone who is at one point in their life a Christian become not a Christian? That's the question we want to answer. So let's talk about um, salvation. And and here's how I want to talk about it. I want to frame it in these two concepts, God's grace and the human response. God's grace and the human response. Let's start with talking about God's grace. Let's read from Ephesians chapter two. This is Paul writing here. Um, There's some underlying passages. Those are your lines. I invite you to read those. For we are God's handiwork, created in Christ Jesus, which God prepared in advance for us to do. Paul is abundantly clear here. What allows human beings to go from death to life? Grace. It's only grace. It's only grace. What allows human beings to go from sinful to forgiven? It's only grace. It's only grace. What allows a human being to go from lost to saved? It's only grace. It's only grace. If you look through that passage, one phrase that just stands out, jumps out to me is in Christ. How many times does he say in Christ in that passage? I'll just save you the trouble. Four, four times. In Christ, in Christ, in Christ, in Christ. How do we, how do we get in Christ? It's only grace. It's only grace. It's only grace. That's really clear. But then we have this question that shows up, particularly in the book of Acts, a couple times. And the question is, what must we do to be saved? And it's really tempting to say, based if, 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 if all of our theology comes from Ephesians chapter 2, to say Nothing. What, if the question is, what must you do to be saved? Nothing. It's, it's only grace. And, and those are the echoes of, of Martin Luther and, and the Reformation. And, and it says, you know, we can't do anything to provide for our own salvation. This is true. But when this question comes up in the book of Acts, what must we do to be saved? The answer is never nothing, there's always an answer. So we have, to, we have to kind of look at that and say, what, what are the apostles saying in response to this question? So let's read some more. Acts chapter 2, 37 to 38. This is the day of Pentecost. Peter preaches this amazing sermon about Jesus, who is the only rightful king and the Lord and Savior. And by the way, you guys crucified him. And we get to verse 37. When the people heard this, they were cut to the heart and said to Peter and the other apostles, brothers, sorry, I stepped on your line. Peter replied, Every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. So, in response to their question, What must we do to be saved? Peter didn't say, Nothing. He said, Repent and be baptized. Um, In Acts chapter 16, uh, this is when Paul and Silas uh, are in Philippi, they get arrested uh, for doing good things, which happened to the apostles a lot. And they're in jail and they're singing praise songs in jail and uh, the earth shakes and their chains fall off. And the jailer, who is personally responsible for the prisoners to stay prisoners, freaks out. He, he thinks that, that he's gonna lose his life. So he goes to these people who were singing praise songs in jail and asks them an important question. Uh, Acts 16, 30 and 31. Uh, he, that is the jailer, brought them out and asked, sirs, They replied, and you will be saved, you and your household. And we know the next thing that happens is the jailer and his household were baptized into Christ. Romans chapter 10, 9 and 10. If you declare with your mouth, Jesus is Lord, and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, for it is with your heart that you believe and are justified, and it is with your mouth that you profess your faith and are saved. So we see this uh, combination. There's not a conflict here. This is a combination of God's grace and a human response. That God offers his grace freely to all, and it is by grace that we are brought from death to life and from sinful to forgiven, from lost to saved. And then we respond with faith and obedience, repentance, baptism, all of these things. So how does the author come back, circle back and encourage these people? He sort of dropped this pretty heavy uh, message on them. If you have been all in with Jesus and then you turn your back on him, you reject Christ. You're lost. And and then he he continues with these words in chapter 9 or chapter 6 verses 9 through 12. He says, even though we speak like this, dear friends, we are convinced of better things in your case, things that have to do with salvation. He said, I'm not talking about you. (laughs) You people are faithful. You're holding on. You're not the ones um, that we're worried about. Verse 10, God is not unjust. He will not forget your work and the love you have shown him as you have helped his people and continue to help them. We want each of you to show this same diligence to the very end so that what you hope for may be fully realized. We do not want you to become lazy but to imitate those who through faith and patience inherit what has been promised. So again, he's saying we're not we're not talking about you. I'm not worried about you guys. You guys are the ones who are being faithful. You guys are the ones who are demonstrating that you have continually responded to God's grace. So this is where we need to examine like we need to understand what the incomplete and inadequate version of our faith can do to us. So when we boil it all down to a decision point and we say the, the whole thing about being a Christian, a Christian is just somebody who at some point in their life made a decision to trust Jesus for salvation. If we boil our, our whole faith in the gospel down to that, then we get this decision point, right? And what happens beyond that point doesn't really matter because grace, right? But what the author would say here and what I, I think we need to do better in our discipleship here in, in our church family is to say that that choice to choose to go all in with Jesus is not a one-time choice. It is an everyday choice, isn't it? I mean, those of you who have been following Jesus for a long time, you know. Like, I have to choose this every day. I have to choose this every day. Sometimes multiple times a day, I have to renew my choice to say Jesus is my Lord and Savior. Because I live in a culture, and I still have this sinful nature that's dead in me, but it wants to come back to life, that keeps saying, you know what, maybe, 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 You'd be better off on your own. Maybe, maybe, you don't have to pay this high price. Maybe there's an easier way. Maybe there's a wider gate, right? We have to make this choice every day. So what the the author here is trying to encourage him to do is to hold on, and what hold on looks like is keep demonstrating the marks of a Christian. Keep doing the things that show that you are responding to the grace of God daily in your life. And, and he talks about their, their work and the love they have shown to, to his people and, and how they continue. He says, don't be lazy, because this is what, what happened to us. If we reduce our faith and our salvation to a decision point in our past, then we become lazy and complacent in the present. And we start to think that what we do now doesn't really matter. I know a lot of Bible verses. I, I can sing all the worship songs. I, I pray pretty regularly. So all that, all that comes from this decision I made in the past. I'm good to go. The says, no, 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 you, you actually have to hold on to the end. You have to continue maturing and continue growing to the very end. Imitate those who through faith and patience inherit what has been promised. I think, I think the warning here is important. What, what he's offering is a warning to these people who are doing a good job holding on. Remember, he says, I'm not talking about you. I don't, I don't believe that you guys have rejected Jesus, but I'm warning you that if, if you get complacent and lazy in your faith, you could find yourself there at a point where you reject the full gospel and you revert to an inadequate and incomplete version of it. <clears throat> and the warning is something that I think they should take seriously. It reminds me of the Christmas story. You guys know this movie where Ralphie wants a Red Ryder BB gun? What does everybody tell him? you will shoot your eye out, right? It's a warning. <clears throat> it's not necessarily a prediction. Like, Ralphie goes, I'm not going to shoot my eye out. And what does he do? He sort of shoots his eye out, right? If you haven't seen that movie, spoiler alert. <clears throat> but th- this is the warning. It's not necessarily a prediction. It's just a warning. This could happen to you if you don't hold on, if you don't stay faithful. Now I think that, that's unsettling to us. If it's unsettling to you, I think what I would say is, good. <laughs> it's supposed to be it's supposed to be unsettling. It's supposed to remind us that, that this choice to follow Jesus is a daily choice, and, and we can't stop making it. Every day we make the choice to either follow Jesus or to not to. And we've got to make the choice every day to follow Jesus. So this is unsettling to us because I think sometimes we worry, have I? Is that me? Have I rejected? Have I turned my back on Jesus? I, I would say if if you're worried that possibly you have, you probably haven't. Because what he's talking about is a conscious choice to reject Jesus, to crucify the Son of God all over again and say, his sacrifice doesn't matter to me, don't need it, don't want it. It's a conscious choice, right? And if you haven't made that conscious choice to reject Jesus, then you don't have anything to worry about. That's not you, okay? But then I think we worry on behalf of others, because we know people. We know other people, right, who have been at some point faithful followers and now it seems that they've wandered away. What about them? Is it possible to go from being not a Christian to being, from being a Christian to being not a Christian? I think we should worry. I think we should worry not only for their eternity, but we should worry for their present. I think we should pray. I think we should reach out. I think we should acknowledge that repentance for that person is going to be an act of God and not some magic words we say. The question comes down for us because we really don't know people's hearts. And I think that's important to remind ourselves, because I think sometimes we, we get in a very, I don't know, kind of judgy mentality. We don't know people's hearts, we don't know people's motives, we don't know what's going on. That's all God's domain. We'll just leave that up to Him. But we need to we need to know our own hearts. So I, I just want to finish with this verse from uh, chapter 11. And this is kind of where we're going next week. So this is a good kind of wet your appetite for, for next week. Hebrews 11 verse 6 says this, And without faith, it is impossible to please God, because anyone who comes to him must believe that he exists and that he rewards those who earnestly seek him. I, I just want to zero in on that phrase, earnestly seek him. What does it look like in your life to earnestly seek God? Maybe it's easier to start with, well, what, what things in my life do I earnestly seek? What other things in my life do I earnestly seek? Maybe it's vacation. Maybe you're, you're earnestly seeking. You're on the edge of, you can't wait. You're counting down the days to your next vacation. And you're like, oh, this is going to be great. I can't wait. I'm making the plans. You got the things lined up. Hope it wasn't in Fort Myers. I mean, you're, ma- you're, you're making your plans For your next vacation, you're earnestly seeking that, and you've scheduled your whole like next six months around this, right? Because you have to plan for vacation, right? Maybe it's um, maybe it's your next time you get to be with your grandchildren. You're earnestly seeking that. You've scheduled around it. You've made your plans. You've blocked off the time. You've got your treats ready to spoil them. You know what you know what you're gonna do. Maybe it's a Colts victory. Who's earnestly seeking a Colts victory? We got some people Colts fans in the house. Good luck, man. I hope it happens. You never know with them, right? But some of you schedule around it. You make your plans. You choose your wardrobe based on, yes, you're a strange. Love you. You're strange. Love you. Do you earnestly seek God that way? I think it's an important question. Do you schedule your life around opportunities to be with God? Do you look forward to the next moment you can gather with other people to worship and pray and study together? do you make your plans? Do you block it off on the calendar? Do you earnestly seek God? If the answer is yes, then you have have nothing to fear. There's, there's, there's There's no danger here for you. If the answer is no, if you honestly look at your life and you go, you know what? I actually don't earnestly seek God the way I earnestly look forward to my next vacation. I'm way more excited about my next vacation than I am about the next time to go to church. then then maybe it's time to back up and start asking questions about my elementary teachings of the faith. Remember where we started, chapter six, verse one and two? What do I really believe about Jesus? Do I believe that the whole point of being a Christian is to get to a place in my life where one time I made a decision to trust Jesus for my salvation so I could go to heaven and not hell when I die, and that was really it? Or do I really believe that I'm called to live with Jesus as my Lord and Savior, like the one who is in control of my life. He, like, I'm, a, I'm gonna be a Jesus centered person. Everything that comes out of me is gonna come from the authority of Jesus in my life. Do I earnestly seek God that way? Is that what I really believe the Christian faith is about? And if not, maybe I need to review some of these elementary teachings so that not only can I be sure personally that I'm staying connected with God I'm making the choice every day to respond to his grace but also so that I can be a part of encouraging this body of believers because friends you, you know it, it can be really painful to live out the way of Jesus in our culture it will put us in conflict with our culture do you think that's going to get easier or harder as we go into the future it's going to get harder sorry I'm gonna just lift the cat out of the bag it's going to get harder it's gonna get harder. And guys, if we need each other, so if you are daily choosing to respond to God's grace, you're helping me. You're helping the people next to you. You're, we're linking arms. We're in this together. And if you're not daily choosing to respond, you're not, you're, not, you're not strengthening the body of Christ. You're not encouraging us. We need each other. So I just wanna challenge you with this question. What does it look like in your life to earnestly seek God? Because there's more at stake than just your personal salvation it's it's who we are as a body of Christ and it's also who how we're reflecting God to the lost people in our community right because if the lost people in our community look at us and what they see from us is that Christianity is about getting to a point at some some period in your life where you make a decision to trust Jesus for your salvation and that's really it then are they getting the full gospel or are they getting the whole story about what it means to live a Jesus-centered life with him as Lord. We get a chance to show them the fullness of the gospel and not some boiled down, reduced, inadequate, and incomplete version. That comes from our lives and our choices. In other words, there's a lot at stake here. (laughs) Uh, So no pressure, don't blow it. But I I think that's why the writer is so, uh, using such strong language here and such kind of scary language here because there, there is a lot at stake. And it is really important that we understand the consequences of our choices. And the encouragement is, if you hold on, you receive what's been promised. And if you want to know more about what's been promised, come back next week. That's what we're going to talk about. Would you stand? We're going to close with a word of prayer. I just want to invite you to pray this prayer. Um, ask the Holy Spirit to convict your heart. Uh, it's a scary prayer to pray because um, God might answer it, honestly, but I think that's what we want, right? We want to know where we are so we know how to go forward from here. So let's ask God to show us, what does it look like in my life to earnestly seek after him? Would you pray that with me? Father, we feel the weight of this conversation because it's about eternity and salvation and these really important, heavy matters. And sometimes we just need that wake-up call to to remember that life is not just about what we're going to have for our next meal, but it's about your son being at the center of who we are and what we do. So I just pray this prayer on, on on my own heart. God, would you would you really show me, hold up a mirror so I can see clearly, what does it look like in my life to earnestly seek you? And if there are some ways, God, that I need, I need to double down, I need to recommit, I need to renew and refresh my response to your grace, would you show me how to do that? Just show me that it's needed and guide me gently into that. And I pray that as we do this as a church family, that, that we find that we're stronger as a body of Christ, and that we find that we're reflecting you more accurately to the world around us in a way that draws people to to your son. Would you do that in us and through us, Father? In Christ's name, amen. Friends, I want to invite you to come back um, about 1145 for Bruce's ordination. Uh, Otherwise, go in peace, be salt and light. The world desperately needs Christ.